Welcome to Morning Report Top Stories, a selection of news from RNZ's morning news programme. MPs have clashed for the first time since the election in a fiery debate that may set the tone for the next three years to come. Party leaders argued over race relations, conspiracies and Labour's election drubbing. Our political reporter Katie Scotcher has more. Luxon versus Hipkins, the 54th Parliament's first face-off between the two Chrises. How has he survived when nearly half of his caucus lost their jobs under his leadership? This could well be the most shambolic beginning of any government in New Zealand's history. Prime Minister Christopher Luxon spoke at length about Labour's election drubbing, describing it as humiliating. He questioned why Chris Hipkins remains Labour leader. He is actually like an arsonist who, having thrown an accelerant all over the joint and lit the place up, he doesn't just slink off actually leaving the scene realising he's caused a huge amount of damage. He doesn't actually fess up, put his hand up, apologise to the New Zealand people and actually say he got it wrong. He just simply loiters and hangs around at the scene of the crime. The sledging went both ways, with Chris Hipkins attacking the coalition government's agenda. National's decision to wind back the smoke-free Aotearoa agenda is a disgrace to New Zealand as a country. It is an international embarrassment. The opposition leader then turned up the heat, accusing the government of adopting conspiracy theories as policy. I say to the members opposite who have pledged to end all COVID-19 mandates, can they name one that's still in place? Can they name one? I hear crickets on the Treasury benches, Mr Speaker, because there aren't any. But they want to buy into the conspiracy theorist view. Deputy Prime Minister Winston Peters used his first speech back at Parliament to criticise Te Party Māori and question how its MPs call themselves the Māori voice. And the moment you challenge their authority, they start shouting out the easiest cowardice answer, racist. Oh, no, we're not. Te Party Māori co-leader Rawiri Waititi was quick to hit back. This coalition presents the last gasp Mr Peters, of a generation and demographic who are terrified of no longer being the majority. Terrified of being treated the way they have treated us. The debate gave a glimpse into what the next three years could look like. This government has opened the floodgates of hatred towards Māori. We're going to go back to calling our country New Zealand. We're not going to have a French Polynesian name. That's an insult to everybody in the South Island. Race relations was a clear clash point for all parties, a theme that is likely to continue throughout the parliamentary term. The rhetoric that we've seen in the last 24 hours of suggesting that those who speak fluent Tarao Māori in public service roles should have their pay docked is simply disgraceful. Chris Hipkins was referring to RNZ's story on the government's move to investigate stopping more public servants getting extra pay for being skilled in Te Reo Māori. Public Service Minister Nicola Willis has since softened her language, saying she only opposes such bonuses when they aren't relevant. I accept there will be many circumstances where uh, receiving a bonus for te reo Māori use could be relevant to the job at hand, but I do want to better understand where they're used, why they're used, and where they're not relevant. Um, I don't think that we should be using them. It's not yet clear when Nicola Willis will hear back from officials. Today, the new coalition government and opposition will meet face-to-face again 
for the first question time of the 54th Parliament. If yesterday's debate is anything to go by, prepare for more fireworks. Israeli warplanes have carried out more heavy bombardments across Gaza as fighting intensifies in the south of the territory. Israeli forces are battling with Hamas and Islamic Jihad fighters to the north and east of the city Khan Yunus, which has now become a priority for the Israeli army. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu says the only way to, quote, finish the job in Gaza is to use crushing force against Hamas. Mr Netanyahu has also said that after the war, Israel must retain security control of Gaza. Military analyst Professor Michael Clark explains how Israel's military offensive is unfolding. They've still got some work in the north. They're still involved in Jabalia, the big refugee camp in the north. And there's about a third of um, Gaza City, which they're still trying to occupy. So they're not finished there, but they will get finished there in a matter of, let's say, a week or so. But as you say, the main concentration is the south. And they're doing what the international community said that they shouldn't do, and the United States said they shouldn't do, which is go in with armoured forces towards Khan Yunis, and one would guess also Rafa, um, as it were, moving in on the city, cutting across Gaza with uh, some heavy armour, it seems, and also conducting a lot of strikes uh, on the neighbourhoods of Khan Yunis. And one might expect that this uh, will uh, be be, uh, rescinded a little bit in in a few days, but they're certainly going in hard at the very beginning, I think probably on the assumption that politically they've only got so much time to do this before there is so big a reaction in the rest of the world that they have to go more easily. But they are certainly trying to make a point that they are going after every target, I think, in Khan Yunus that they think is a target and that they want to set up the conditions to move in on the ground, which they will try to do in the, in the next day or so. That's military analyst Professor Michael Clark. Now, the UN says Gaza is one of the world's most dangerous places at the moment and those fleeing Israeli attacks have nowhere safe to turn. For the latest in this ongoing conflict, I spoke to our correspondent in Tel Aviv, Sarah Coates. According to the United Nations, 80% of the 2.3 million people that live in the Gaza Strip are now internally displaced. Uh, What we've been seeing over these last few days is the Israeli military dropping these flyers over homes, over neighbourhoods in southern Gaza. Uh, We're talking here about Khan Yunus telling people to move further south down to Rafah. And this is because of this expanded military campaign. But what it's causing is mass displacement. So many people shoved down into one tiny little area. And due to this intense bombing campaign that Israel has been carrying out, Uh, Many of these aid trucks that were getting through, even though that was uh, very limited compared to what would normally go through, these trucks haven't been coming through. So aid agencies on the ground uh, are calling the situation apocalyptic, saying that these people simply don't have enough food, don't have enough water, and that the situation is growing worse by the minute. So look, it is very worrying. And look, Corin, it's getting cold here now. There was a storm here today, and a lot of these people are facing absolutely horrendous futures, they are literally sleeping on the street with nothing above their heads and nothing to keep warm. So it's absolutely horrendous. There have also been reports of some medical facilities in Gaza that have been hit or or bombed. Yeah, look, this has been happening really for the past few weeks. Uh, All of these hospitals are overwhelmed. Uh, The Nasser Hospital, which is in 
Khan Yunus, it is just seeing so many people coming in with, you know, these groups saying that it's really just turning into a graveyard and these people cannot be saved. So seeing these images coming in is extremely disturbing and hearing these accounts on the ground uh, is just simply heartbreaking. In Israel, I see there is still a lot of anger and concern around uh, hostages. So, so much anger. There was a war cabinet meeting yesterday with these hostage families and they are simply furious. They're saying that, that Benjamin Netanyahu should step down. Now, look what happened at this meeting is that Netanyahu, the Prime Minister, he said that it, he wouldn't be able to bring back all these hostages anytime soon. And, you know, there's so much pressure now on the government. Uh, these families say that they're going to be going international to an unspecified international body to put pressure on it to bring these people home. And and look, with this bombing campaign, with this military campaign expanding inside Gaza, these families are just so worried that their loved ones will instead be caught up in this fighting rather than these Hamas militants. And just very briefly, there was also this report yesterday in the Wall Street Journal that said that Israel is mulling a plan to actually flood these tunnels underneath the Gaza Strip with seawater from the Mediterranean to flush out Hamas fighters. But of course, these families are highly concerned that it will actually drown their loved ones who are believed to be being held in those tunnels. And Benjamin Netanyahu also uh, having to continually defend Israel's tactics, uh, growing international concern about the high Palestinian death toll. Exactly. Look, there are so many calls for a ceasefire right now. And even though the United States continues to throw its support behind Israel, uh, its wording has become a lot more calculated. We have been hearing from the United States that, you know, Israel must try and save as many Palestinians inside the Gaza Strip as possible, try and limit humanitarian human casualties in the Strip. And this is why we have been seeing Israel releasing these grids, these maps with QR codes. Uh, and this is, you know, being seen as just for the benefit to appease the Americans. But, you know, if the death toll continues to rise, the injury toll continues to rise. And from what we're hearing on the ground, there are so many people still trapped under the rubble. And unless there is some sort of a pause in fighting or a ceasefire soon, then there's absolutely no way that these families can dig these people out. So it's simply horrifying. And that is our correspondent in Tel Aviv, Sarah Coates. Residents in Lower Hutt are desperately hoping a sickening stench coming from a wastewater treatment plant will stop following a commitment from authorities. Now, the smell coming from the Non-compliant wastewater treatment plant in the suburb of Seaview has received hundreds of complaints this year. Exasperated residents at a public meeting last night described the smell as vomit-inducing, preventing them from enjoying their backyards and affecting their businesses. Eleanor Dwyer reports. Alex Beavis has lived on Bell Road for 12 years. She says the stink coming from the nearby Seaview wastewater treatment plant is nauseating. It smells like your backyard has been used as a toilet. It makes it impossible for us to sit outside on our deck on a, on a nice evening, have a drink and watch the kids play. It's just impossible to do. Close the window, sit inside. Miss Beavis says when she first moved to the area, there was only an occasional whiff coming from the plant on a windy day. But in recent months, it's become unbearable. Jason Evley of vehicle transportation business Auto Dispatch says the stench is like being stuck inside a portaloo. 
He says when it's really bad, workers can't eat lunch and develop headaches. If it was my business that was making this much smell, I would have been closed down. Obviously, it's a necessity, like we need to have it and all that sort of stuff. But the fact of the matter is, is that yeah, it just needs to not smell. Like we need to be able to go to work and actually breathe. Over the past three years, Greater Wellington Regional Council has issued one abatement notice and eight infringement notices over the smell, totalling $7,250. These have gone to Hutt City Council, Upper Hutt City Council, Wellington Water and the plant operator Veolia New Zealand Limited. Nearly 150 complaints have been lodged by members of the public this year, and Greater Wellington Regional Council has opened an investigation into odours coming from the plant last month. Wellington Water's Jeremy McKibben says the plant's mechanism to dilute smells, called a biofilter media, is decomposing. But the process to replace it has caused an even stronger stench, which hit the suburb in November, and this is likely to continue on and off for the next six weeks. We expect the work to be finished um, in the last part of January, and then from that point on the the odour will will, gradually taper off. But up until that point, it'll be higher than it normally is during the last sort of earlier part of the year, um, and that's unavoidable as we do the work. That's of little comfort to Alan Levine, who runs the Wellington Top 10 Holiday Park in Seaview. He's going into his busy season now with tourists arriving from overseas. Customer reviews have plummeted when the stench blows over to the park, and he wants the work delayed. While they've been scraping away and doing this, it's, it's, it has a big impact on us, as you can tell by my attitude in there, was, hey, look, why now? You know, 70% of our income comes in in the next three months and um, that's what they're focusing on in getting it done. I'd, I'd much rather they push it out to sort of like March, April or May. Lower Hutt Deputy Mayor Tui Lewis says the council is proposing to spend $13 million to improve the odour issues at the plant in the next three years. The concern I have is they have put up with it for a long time now. It seems a long time to them. It is in their houses, it is bad. For our council, we have um, moved the investment in this issue to the top of our long-term plan and it will be dealt with in the next three years. The money is there. Residents say they are determined to see the work gets done and the hope they will be able to open their windows once again. Recent modelling shows Wellington has a 24% chance of entering level 4 water restrictions this summer. That would mean residents could have to decrease indoor water use by up to 50%. All outdoor water use would be banned under level 4 restrictions and businesses would also have to change their practices. Here to talk about this is Wellington Water Chief Executive Tonya Haskell. Uh, Kia ora, good morning. Why are things so bad this year? Uh, Morena Ingrid, um, well, thanks for, for letting me on. It's good to be able to explain these things to people. Um, the region has a finite amount of water that we can draw and treat and supply to our residents. And under conditions such as we have at the moment, there's enough headroom between the amount we can supply and the amount that's used. Um, you know, and that's because things like we've had rain and people have, it's not been that hot, so people haven't used a lot of water. And also I think our conservation measures are hitting home and people are starting to value their water, which has been awesome. But as we go further into summer and it gets hotter and drier, 
we use more water and our supply from our rivers and our um, aquifer, that decreases. And so that what that's what's called a buffer between the amount that, that's available um, and then the amount that people use. So we've modelled the predicted summer, which is an El Nino summer, and it indicates that the traditionally hot and dry months in uh, February and March, there is a 24% chance that our demand gets too close to that headroom of supply and we have to um, pull back on usage across the board so that we still have enough safe drinking water to get to everybody. I see in your release uh, you talk about using and losing more water than ever. What's going on there? Well, um, as you know, we've um, updated our figures on how much water is lost through leaks, and that is up to about 45% across the region. So there's a lot of water that is just disappearing out of our network and not getting to our people. Is that going to change? Yeah, well, we're working really hard on that with our councils. They're doing their long-term plan, and um, it's one of our three things that we need to do to make sure there's enough supply long-term for the region and leakage and managing and fixing leaks and renewing the pipes is top of the list for most of our councils. Well, what would be the timeline for that? Because I know, I mean, dry years uh, are going to come and go, aren't they? Uh, And and that's one thing you can't control, but what you can control uh, is how much of the water gets wasted. Yes, well, but it does take, it's, it's, you know, we're working as hard as we can. There is um, a limited amount of funding available and there's a limited amount of um, resource available to do it. So we just try and maximise both of those. It is, it's a, it, as you say, Ingrid, it's going to be a long-term plan in order to get across that. So Wellington is at level one now. Talk us through those levels and what would happen at level four. So level four water restrictions is um, there's no outdoor water use. At all, so no washing cars or watering the garden. And then at level four, the thing that's different is that we ask people to reduce indoor water use by about 50%. Are you confident that that will work? Well, it, it will provide enough to kind of keep that buffer going, Ingrid. And, um, and people have been really responsive this year. I think they understand that, um, you know, it's looking like a hot, dry summer. All the predictions are that will come in in February, March. And we're getting, people are really starting to tune into it, which has been great. What other advice do you have for Wellingtonians in terms of being prepared for this? Well, um, I think it's just to, to start looking at, at your water use now and seeing where you might waste it or whether there's leaks on your property and also making sure, please, to keep calling those leaks into us. We do have a beat on every single leak. We're still trying to get the big leaks fixed first because they produce the most water loss. But having all of the leaks on our record and keeping an eye on them is something that the public can really help us with. How many leaks are there? How many? Um, I, do you know what I'm... I mean, are I, there hundreds around the city? That, Thousands, thousands across the region. Okay. Yep. So, Can you understand that that might be frustrating to hear for Wellingtonians, our capital city, um, you know, for things to be in such a bad state? Totally. You know, and it's really hard to ask people to limit their own water use when they can see a leak outside their property. But we just need to understand that every bit helps and we're doing as much as we can to fix the leaks and if everybody can help with their water use, then between us, we've got a good chance of getting water all summer.
Appreciate your time this morning. That is Wellington Water Chief Executive Tonya Haskell. Well, is it a case of the uh, greenwashing of highways or just bureaucratic slackness? Well, Waka Kotahi's own website has been making what it seems are some exaggerated claims about how green its road building is, with the transport agency saying four highways have independent international certification for sustainability when they do not. Phil Pennington has been looking at this. Good morning, Phil. Kia ora, Corin. What is going on here? Well, Transmission Gully we went looking at, that's got a very patchy record during the build. We've talked about that, a lot of fines, a lot of breaches about environmental consents, and now it's been investigated again. But on the website at Waka Kotahi, it said this was going to be our first highway ever built with Green Road certification. Now, Green Roads is a US certification agency, so this was going to be independent international certification. That's checking that things are environmentally sustainable. But when I went and asked Green Roads what about it, they said, mm, unfortunate to see this because, in fact, it doesn't have certification. It has a rating, but that's a lesser thing. Um, so then I went looking some more because... Elsewhere on the website it said it wasn't just Transmission Gully that has this Green Road certification. There were five other highways that also had it. Did they so so does does Waka Kotahi apply f- to get this certification? Or is it just done? Well, they did a deal with Green Roads uh, some years ago when they were doing the gully and said, well, this is the way to make sure we're going to get outside independent certification to an international standard. And then Green Roads gets involved with the builder. That's through the build process. So that said, we're going to get certification. For these five others that said, we are going to get certification, that this is a contractual requirement. And that's what the website says. When I went asking about these other five roads, well, it turns out that three of those five they don't have international certification with Green Roads either. Um, there's only two that do. That's Minga Bluffs, which was a small project down in Arthur's past, $20 million, and the Puhoi Motorway, which is a big project. That just got it in the last few weeks. So I went to Waka Kotahi and I said, what about it? Your website is saying one thing and we are hearing another and just what is going on. And it turns out that Transmission Gully has a rating with Green Roads, but that's a lesser thing and that's not what the contract says. And the other three, in fact, dropped out of Green Roads some time ago. So the website is several years out of date. Waka Kotahi says they're going to be updating that website now, but it was making incorrect claims. And the thing that they have shifted the other three projects to, and these are really big projects, Bay Link and Tauranga, uh, you've got the uh, Pika Pika to Otaki Road, and you've got Auckland Northern Corridor. Those have been shifted now to Waka Kotahi's own They come up with their own sustainability strategy that they say fits in better with their priorities. But that is not international, and that's not independent. Mm. What what was the rating for Transmission Gully? Gully got a silver, and uh, Minga Bluffs got a bronze, and Huhoi got a silver. That was a silver. Transmission Gully got a silver pilot rating as opposed to a certification. The point being that... We are now in an era, aren't we, with the new government of building new road, big new roads, 13 roads of national significance. I think whether you talk to people who support those roads or oppose them, they would all say we do want those roads to be as environmentally sustainable as possible. You need to have a benchmark. This has become very Isn't that part of the consenting process, though? It was. Right. So It was. And in fact, in one of the contract documents, it says the contract at Transmission Gully must build and design this two reach certification with green roads. I said, well, what about that? 
just seems to have disappeared into the ether. They've agreed mutually with Green Roads to drop it. They didn't tell the public. In fact, they told the public something wrong about what was going on. Now we know that they're applying their own internal uh, assessment on environmental sustainability. But ask your question on that. How much pressure would they become under financially? How much pressure politically if they're having to build roads? And if the environmental toll of those of trying to hit an environmental target goes up, you know, there's going to be pressure possibly to play with those standards. If you had an international independent system, different play out of that pressure, isn't there? All right. Uh, just finally, so what are they saying that they, they're what, updating the website anymore? Yeah, I mean, and they're saying this rating from Green Roads on Transmission Gully, that was significant. Green Roads itself says that they had great environmental wins on Transmission Gully. But we know that there was an investigation in there into breaches. They say they're updating the website, that they're going to get that accurate. And they're giving, saying that, you know, we have confidence in this broader outcomes approach that we are instituting on the roads going ahead under the new government. Thank you very much, Phil Pennington there. Well, the television streaming service Neon has announced it's increasing the price of its subscriptions next year, but it's not stopping there. It is also going to introduce some ads. Now, the service's owner, Sky TV, says the move is necessary to keep sourcing new content for the platform, but how will Neon stack up against its competitors? And how might consumers react? Tech commentator Paul Spain is with us now. Hi, Paul. Good morning, Karen. Let's talk about the ads first. A little bit new in the sense that you're paying for the streaming service, but also getting ads now. That's different, say, than uh, TVNZ's On Demand or 3 Now, which is obviously more of a sort of a free-to-air model. The ads, you know, you that's just part and parcel, isn't it? Is this going to be significant for Neon? Uh, look, the, the ads in their entirety are coming in on their uh, basic plan, which was only introduced uh, last year. So I'm not sure you know, what the, their percentage of subscribers are on that plan. Um, but yeah, even on, the, even on their standard uh, plan, uh, when you pause anything you're watching, you're going to get ads at that time whilst there's that price increase. So yeah, I think that will probably upset a few people for sure. That's interesting. So the ads on the standard plan are pause if you watch. That's not the end of the world, is it? Uh, you know, people will probably be fairly tolerant of that. But uh, but uh, what about ads before and after programs or, you know, slowing you down? Yeah, that is more the basic plan, which, which is not, uh, you know, an HD uh, video plan. And, there's, you know, my, my pick is those that are certainly... You know, watching, uh, you know, on their on their main TV are probably likely to be on that higher plan at at this point. Um, and look, we do see a precedent. Uh, you know, Hulu in the states started doing this 15 years ago with their uh, their lowest plan uh, has always been uh, or virtually always been ad supported. I think since uh, 2008. Uh, so there is a little bit of following of some of the international trends. And of course, we know Netflix have been doing this in other markets. Uh, such as Australia, although it's significantly cheaper for the ad-supported uh, Netflix. I think it's around um, eight New Zealand dollars if if you were uh, on that in Australia, but it hasn't been offered here yet. This is just such an incredibly uh, competitive space now. Just looking at the uh, the Flix.co.nz uh, website and they're listing all the streamers, and they've got about thirteen or fourteen in New Zealand now. I mean, it's it's becoming very complicated, isn't it? 
It is, and, and what that leads to is people turning on and off different services. So, you know, if Sky, um, you know, make a wrong wrong move, then you know, likely they're going to lose some subscribers who, you know, maybe uh, you know uh, are using multiple services and say, well, well, we'll turn that one off for a little while, and that's the that's the convenience uh, that most people have, uh, unless you're you're saving by signing up for uh, the annual plan. The interesting aspect too is is the justification for the price increases in the ads is finding content and what all those competitors suggest is that it is incredibly difficult to get the big shows now. Neon's done pretty well. I mean Sky with HBO has been pretty good with the likes of Game of Thrones and Yellowstone but the writer's strike and that competition is going to make it difficult. Yeah, look, look, it it has been a difficult uh, time for them, and uh, you know, Sky's uh, you know profit took an eighteen percent uh, you know hit in their, their last annual financial results. Uh, so you know, it it is a bit of a, a balancing act for them in terms of you know what are the things that they do to you know, increase revenue and and keep their uh, shareholders happy whilst uh, not. Uh, not you know losing all their their, their customers and uh, my pick is they've, they've probably landed about right with this um, you know this particular change although certainly you know some will will be upset the the sport element too they've obviously increased the price for their online sport offering as well as the uh, set top box as well uh, what sort of crossover do you see between the customers that are that are big sports fans but also wanting perhaps Soho and Arts, is there much of a crossover there? Um, look, there, I mean, there, there's, there certainly is a, a, a crossover. Um, I, you know, I think kind of what they've been doing is, is getting us trained into, you know, this expectation of, of very regular, uh, you know, price increases. And, you know, when it comes to sport, uh, you have, you know, ultimately that, that, that choice between, you know, subscribing um, or getting inferior options. And, and piracy is part of that. And we see that on the entertainment, the TV and movie side. And, you know, if streamers increase their prices uh, too much, then that's where we would expect to see an increase to people pirating uh, content, which, you know, became common there for, you know, for, for a number of years when it was much harder uh, to get content uh, in, in New Zealand when we didn't have the, the Netflix and, and neon-type choices. Mm. Paul, thank you very much. Uh, Paul Spain, tech commentator. You've been listening to Morning Report Top Stories. 